Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, we are thrilled to welcome filmmaker John Shank to the show. John recently co-directed Athlete A with his film partner, Bonnie Cohen. Athlete A was selected for the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival. John co-directed and photographed an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, which premiered on opening night of the Sundance Film Festival in 2017, was shortlisted for the 2018 Oscars, and was nominated for a 2018 BAFTA for Best Documentary. In 2016, John co-directed and photographed the Peabody Award-winning film Audrey and Daisy, which premiered in competition at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. In 2011, John directed The Island President, winner of the 2011 TIFF's People's Choice Award and IDA's Peer Lawrence Award. I'm probably mispronouncing some of that stuff. John was awarded the 2004 Independent Spirit Award for directing Lost Boys of Sudan, served as the DP for the 2008 Academy Award-winning Smile Pinky, and won an enemy for Blame Somebody Else in 2007. Well, that is very impressive. John, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, it's, I'm so happy to be here with you, Shaughnessy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so so great. I'm in frozen Indianapolis. You're in San Francisco. Are you at home? Yeah, I, I hate to admit it. We get a little cold when it hits when it hits uh, the 40s here. But, <laughs> I know. Um, I feel, well, we, for you guys, I feel for you guys in the Midwest. You're you're a native Midwesterner, aren't you? Though you're from Ohio. I grew up in Cincinnati, yeah, not too far oh. from. Louisville. Yeah, not at all. I think that Cincinnati is only actually about an hour and 45 minutes from my house. So I go over there every now and then, the ballpark, things like that. So that's pretty cool. So I just kind of want to dive right in and talk a little bit first about your career. You're a Midwestern boy, like you just said. Did you always know that you wanted to be a filmmaker? How did you find yourself doing what you're doing? Hmm. Well, I grew up uh, with a, a father who was a very serious a fine art photographer and my mother was uh, a social worker who worked in public clinics and um, really did a lot of family therapy with sort of underserved communities in, in Cincinnati. And I always joke that I'm kind of a combination of the two. I do the photography, obviously. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a director of photography and a, and a film director. But, you know, so documentary filmmaking also is kind of a type of social work yeah, in a way. Is. You know, we we're often find ourselves you know, telling the stories of people who've been through difficult things in their life. And so the, the social work skills that I, I learned at, at the knee of my mother probably come in handy as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's actually really cool. It makes perfect sense. It's kind of like the perfect meeting of those two things where you're using, you know, things you got from your dad and from your mom, because it truly is. And I was actually just talking to a reporter about this the other day. I didn't even we talk all the time and what I do in terms of civil litigation or when I was a prosecutor, criminal investigations and everything, how we all it's so important that we all have to be trauma informed when we're, you know, coming into contact with people who've been through terrible things. And I didn't even think about the fact that you guys do too. And it's a different context, but, you know, you're having these same hard conversations with them. And I think a lot of it for a lot of people has been trial by fire and figuring it out as you go. But it sounds like you kind of had a good start on it already just from having been around your mom probably and all of the work that she did while you were growing up. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I, I never thought about it that way, of course, until much later. But 
you know, one thing I'm sure you know this, you learn kind of when you're talking to people who have an expertise in handling people who've been through trauma is that you want, you obviously want to be really careful about re-traumatization and telling stories of trauma can often lead to that. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing that, you know, having done a few films now that touch on this, one thing I think that we realize is that when you empower people who've been through trauma to tell their story, encourage them to think about it as a, a vehicle for, for change, for their own personal change and for societal change, you know, to, to kind of use it as a, use that, the telling of that story as an experience to help others. Mm -hmm. it, it can have something of an opposite effect of re-traumatization. Actually, I think that there is some proof that it can lead to a, a type of healing, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, in, in the sense that you know, you kind of reframe your own experience and, and see it as maybe the foundation for a basis that, in a way that you might help the world. And I think, of course, therapists do that every day, you know, in their work. They talk to people about tough things they've been through and how that might lead to some positive force that they could be in, in, the, in the world. And, and, I, and I hope, obviously, in the documentary film community that we can use our megaphone, so to speak, of speaking to a large audience about these things in a positive way as well. Absolutely. That's so cool. I, I love that point. And I think I totally agree with you. It does seem to have a cathartic effect, I think, in, in a lot of people when they get to stand up and you're not just standing up for yourself, you're standing up for the other people that this person has done this to and hopefully helping to prevent them from doing it to another person. And I think that you can see that just when you watch the testimony in, in this case at the sentencing, all of these women who are brave enough to come in there and stand up and face him and say, you know, whatever it was that their message was, you know, and, and standing up to him. And I think that that's just so important. And it was so amazing that the judge let them do that. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. I know I'm sorry. So let's back up a little bit. And so how did you guys first hear about the USA Gymnastics story, what was going on and like what piqued your interest to get into looking into it and making the film? Yeah, good question. We, I think like a lot of people who just sort of have their ear to the ground about these types of issues. And as the Me Too movement was kind of taking off a few years ago, we knew about the Larry Nassar case. We, we had followed, uh, I think what a lot of Americans followed in the press. And of course, the Nasser arrest made national news. And as more and more survivors came out to speak about their experiences at USA Gymnastics, we followed that a bit. We knew enough to know that the Indianapolis Star reporters were key in the, you know, the original sort of unlocking of the story. But we had not really thought about making a film about it. We were just kind of fans of the journalists and fans of the survivors and so happy to see that there was some, you know, you know, sort of pushback happening against a, what seemed like a systemic problem of abuse. But um, in the middle of all that, we were contacted by Jennifer Say, who you meet in the film. Mm -hmm. Jennifer is a, is a 1986 national U.S. champion gymnast. She's oh. a gymnast. She, she was really a total star in the, in the mid 80s. And through a friend, we met Jen, and she kind of pitched us on the idea of doing a new documentary that would really focus on the survivors of Nasser and, and their activism uh, against USA Gymnastics and, and you know their journey to try to mm -hmm. bring justice. And we learned more about the Indy Star reporters at that point, and we thought, oh my God, this is such an intense story. It's so complex. We knew that we would have to provide context for this giant story, because it, in some ways it goes back to the 60s and 70s, you know, when, oh, yeah. when gymnastics became a little girl sport. 
But one of the first things we realized is we really wanted to meet the Indianapolis Star reporters because it, it really felt like this particular journey in many ways started with them in terms of the uncovering of it. So that's the first thing we did is we, we called that reporting group and introduced ourselves. That's awesome. Super cool. And obviously we're proud, you know, I'm, I live in Indianapolis and was super impressed with everything they did. And, you know, you would think maybe since I'm from Indianapolis and I was a prosecutor at that time that I would have known a little bit more about this, but I truly didn't. And it unfolded in the press every bit as much for me as it did for, you know, anyone else. And I think that that's actually kind of a an example of the failure of the system too, because we didn't even know about it within the prosecutor's office. And that as we'll talk about here in a little bit, this was known within the law enforcement community for quite some time and absolutely nothing was done. In fact, the first time I had ever heard of anything untoward, so to speak, within the gymnastics community, I was just ignorant to all of it, was Marvin Sharp, one of the coaches of one of those local gyms, but here in, I think it was actually up in Hamilton County, which is a suburb, a northern suburb of Indianapolis, or maybe the north side of Indy, but he was running one of these gyms and was also a prolific abuser, which we find over and over again. And you point out in the documentary that there were 54, I think, coaches that had been reported at some point in time or another. And so I saw that. And then he committed suicide pretty much immediately upon being arrested in the county jail. And that's how it really started to come out. It felt like to me, like it all kind of blew up pretty quickly at that point, because it wasn't, I think it wasn't too much time in between when the Indy Star team broke their story but I, I mean, I won't forget it. Like it was just on the news. And then all of a sudden it, it seemed so immediate because as you guys point out, Rachel and Jamie Dancher and Jessica Howard called the Indie Star pretty much immediately. And then from there, it just was like one after another after another. Absolutely right. The, the Indianapolis Star, for those who haven't seen the film, in the film, what you see is that this group of reporters at the Indie Star in 2016 got the go-ahead from their editors to uh, investigate a tip that they had. Mariska Kwiatkowski, who was a mm -hmm. reporter at the Indy Star at the time, had a beat kind of in failure to report, uh, abuse of failure to report laws, which anybody who knows anything about child sexual abuse knows that if you are running an institution where you hear that abuse might be occurring, you, you have an obligation to go to the authorities right away. And it's been proven in case law as you probably know, that right away immediately means right away. You know, you don't wait a day, you don't wait a week, you don't wait a year, which arguably USA Gymnastics did to go to the authorities. And then obviously you hope that the authorities have the wherewithal and expertise to do something about it, which there was a lot of failure, as you pointed out, in the police and the FBI. Anyways, yeah, so the Indy Star, what you see in the film is that they went to report on a story about failure to report at USA Gymnastics, which seemed pretty clear to them that there was evidence that they had failed to report on a case down that was happening in Georgia at the time at a, at a gym in outside Savannah, Georgia. It turns out that there were in the past decade, 54 cases, as you say, that, that had been complained to Steve Penny at USA Gymnastics, the president of USA Gymnastics, but that he decided and they decided to not go to the authorities about. And they had this kind of cockamamie notion of what what a sex what a real complaint or mm -hmm. was that about sexual abuse which which had something to do with you know it, it, unless the unless the complaint came from an actual victim or victim's parents they would not investigate the claim right. and if anybody who knows anything about again about child sexual abuse knows that victims 
And their families are often really shy about speaking up because they're, A, there's a lot of shame. Sometimes young victims don't even know what the definition mm -hmm. is. And so they might not even know that they should complain. You know, so, so often the complaints do come from third-party bystanders or, you know, people who are trying to do the right thing to, re to report crimes. And so they really, uh, USA Gymnastics, there's just no question that they failed to act on that. And, US, and the Indy Star reported on that sort of somewhat generically, right? Mm -hmm. About the case that had nothing to do with Nasser. No, and, nothing at all. And then as you pointed out, I'm sorry, I'll stop speaking in a second. But oh, as, you're you, fine. as you pointed out, when that article came out, it was kind of like lighting a match in a, in a dry forest. There were survivors all over the country saw that article um, Nasser survivors and started to contact the Indy Star with their stories. And that's really where the Nasser story started. It's just, I mean, it's so appalling. And I, I learned a lot from the film that I didn't know because a lot of these details weren't public. I think it came out more when you were able to talk to the team and then also obviously to the survivors who gave you information that I think that hadn't been published before. And what, there were so many things that struck me about it, but I mean, the fact that here you have the president of this huge organization that is for children. It's just, it's all about children. It's about children's competitive sports. And obviously all they're doing is dealing with children day in and day out in this huge hierarchy. And, you know, he's filing these things away in a filing cabinet, like nothing to see here. And I just, it blew my mind. And what's interesting too, is that, you know, you, we were talking a little bit ago about reporting and how anyone who's a leader of one of these institutions is required to report. But in Indiana, it's actually even, they go farther. Many years ago, they changed the law that everybody in Indiana is a, man, a mandatory reporter now. So anybody, like you can be arrested technically the more rare that this happens but if you think that your neighbor is abusing their child and you don't say anything you can be arrested so if joe schmo off the street should be held responsible for doing this my god a person who runs an organization of that size that is for and about children and who is receiving all of these reports and how many of them ever actually got reported not very many. I think I, I think in the film that it was pointed out that unless both the child and the parent signed it or there was a, an eyewitness verifying it or something like that, otherwise it was hearsay. And it's like, well, I'm not it's like I think somebody's been watching too many Law and Order episodes because it's not exactly what that looks like. But it just it blows your mind when you when you watch it, because you're just like there's this was happening for that long on such a grand scale and nobody did anything. Yeah. It is shocking. You would think that and I think John Manley, the civil right, mm -hmm. the civil attorney who takes on a lot of these ends up taking on a lot of these Nasser victims as clients, says in the film, you would think that an organization whose clientele is mostly underage would at least pay lip service to yeah. to, to the the fact that they are the kind of the custodians of, of these young girls and young women. But it, it really is amazing, especially when you go back into history, you know, how little USA Gymnastics did and how little the US Olympic Committee did to protect their own athletes. You would think just from a practical point of view that they would want their athletes to be healthy mentally and physically to, mm -hmm. to produce at the highest level, which they're asking these, these girls to do. But really the opposite is the case. And what you see in the film is ultimately like a lot of abuse. It really ultimately comes down to money. And unfortunately, USA Gymnastics 
uh, was really focused on their brand and their success, you know, winning medals in, in competitions, especially at the Olympics, much more, infinitely more than they were focused on protecting their athletes. And I hate to say it, but I think one of the conclusions you see in the film is, you know, really young girls become kind of almost like chattel in a machine that is designed to pump out sponsorship dollars. And the end result is from Steve Penny's point of view, who was trained in marketing and, you know, worked for baseball, major league baseball and marketing, and then went on to other Olympic federations and then ultimately to USA Gymnastics. He's a, a marketing guy he, he, who was the president of this organization and really had no place making policy or interpreting policy about how to, how to handle young people, you know, when, who were being supervised by adults and kind of the complex system that you need to have in place to robust system that you need to have in place mm -hmm. to keep abuse from happening. Because obviously there's an inherent power dynamic. If you have coaches who are adults and own the gym often and mm -hmm. who have complete control over who makes the team and who goes to competitions and the families and their young children who are just kind of know nothing at the beginning about gymnastics that are just mm -hmm. kind of beholden to these, to these folks who do hold the power. So yeah, one would hope that they would have better policy in place. And certainly now it's kind of shocking to think that not a whole lot has changed. And after all these revelations about NASA and other abusive coaches. It's crazy. And that it is really all about the money. And we talk about this a lot that some people, I think, think that they're protecting the integrity of the organization. If they keep things like that quiet and we can just move along in actuality, no, that's not the case. Cause at some point in time, it is going to come back around and you're going to be in way more trouble down the road than you are now. If you just own it and say, you know what, we made a mistake here. We didn't have the proper safeguards in place and this is what happened, but here's what we're going to do to change it. And instead we see, I mean, I see it in my work every day over and over. They just keep it quiet, try not, for it to get out and then it does and you know in this particular circumstance we have the the benefit of hindsight but looking back when you look who the leadership is and how this hierarchy worked it's no surprise that there was something like this going on i mean it's still crazy that it was so prolific but it really doesn't surprise me because they it wasn't built to do any better than that and that kind of makes me want to segue into like the overall culture of usa gymnastics because it wasn't just the sexual abuse the physical and mental abuse that these kids sustained by the powers that be was unreal. I mean, I think Jamie, there was a quote from Jamie Dancer in there that said that she still, to some extent, feels a little bit bad about telling the truth about what Larry did to them because he was the nicest person around. That just really struck me like, are you kidding? The child molester was the nicest person to them. That just broke my heart when I heard her say that. Yeah. Yeah, that is a, it is a amazing, shocking and touching moment. And kudos to Jamie Dancher for just kind of her ability to art articulate her own complex emotion and psychology around her abuse. Uh, she's just an amazing person, amazing athlete and, and, an, and an amazing activist for this cause. What she's describing there and kind of in, in what she puts succinctly with that statement is that USA Gymnastics was really kind of the ideal place for a child sexual abuser to thrive, unfortunately. It was Nasser, as you see in the film, was kind of a master groomer. He kind of comes He's off good. as this goofy, dad jokey kind of guy, quirky guy, you know, the, the neighbor next door who would sort of give you treats mm -hmm. and, you know, pal around with you and your friends. 
that seemed especially appealing within an organization that was really not at all child-centric, which, which really was, as Jennifer Say describes, the kind of the, the culture of USA Gymnastics going back to the, to the 70s, was really one in which coaches could were encouraged to kind of really drive their athletes hard and use emotional and, and sometimes physical abuse to get, quote unquote, get the best performances out of their athletes. And it, it's not uncommon for young girls to have eating disorders and to have terrible body image problems because of the way the coaches talk to them. And you got to remember, a lot of these athletes start when they're five, six, seven, eight years old. I mean, they're really young girls and they're being you're being told to watch their weight as they're, you know, entering puberty and just really, you know, things that can have kind of deep psychological trauma for children. And within that atmosphere, of course, like a goofy, nice doctor mm -hmm. who, you know, supposedly is taking care of you and taking care of your wounds and your bruises and injuries does seem appealing. So that, that's an amazing statement that Jamie makes. And we did find that, of course, not always, not every athlete had a bad experience, but there were a shocking number of high percentage of people who went through this system, USA Gymnastics put in place that really came out feeling like it was, you know, abusive in some way. Yeah. I think one person said that cruelty was the accepted method and everybody just abided by it so that, and I think it actually was Jennifer Say, I said at one point that they were so beaten down by everything else that when it came to the sexual abuse, they just like, it's almost like they just didn't have enough left to even address it. And he was a master manipulator. That is for sure. Uh, we talk about that a lot in our work that they have, it, it's, it's almost like a science. They have this down to a science on what to say and they figure out what it is that works for them. And for him, it was like the quirky doctor and the fact that he was a doctor. It's important. I think that you touched on that because in our society, for whatever reason, we kind of see doctors as gods and we have a case where a doctor was molesting boys for a very long period of time over the course of 15 years, I think. And the, the, you just believe the doctor. If the doctor says that's what needs to be done, that's what needs to be done. And Larry is really good at it because he would use these big words, these big medical words and just sounded like that's okay. That's legit. And if the doctor says we need to do it, then that's what we need to do. And I think that, I think it may have been Tim Evans when he was finally kind of pushing him on it and asking some of the questions. And it was like, in Andrea, the detective also come out. It's like, he's really not saying anything though. He, he actually isn't. He's just putting these words together. But if you really break it down and think about it, it's like complete bullshit. <laughs> but you don't know that at the time when you're a parent and your child's, you know, going through these grueling 35 hours a week workouts. And this is the guy who, you know, has all the answers, you, you know, you're willing to do what it takes to make sure your kid's safe. And you have no idea that actually what's going on is he's abusing them. Yeah. Yeah, one thing you see in the film is Nasser himself made a series of video that I think spans the course of over 20 years of his career, where he would kind of make these video demonstrations, some of which he posted to his website, that it doesn't take much of a stretch to, to realize that they were part of his grooming process. He was, mm -hmm. in a way, he was not only grooming just his victims, but he was grooming the world around him. At USA Gymnastics and in the in the greater community, kind of pushing the limits of what a doctor might do when they're treating an athlete. Like you say, doing kind of say he's stretching, you know, the lower legs of, of an athlete on his um, treatment table, sort of casually touching areas of the body that most doctors would ask the patient if they were comfortable with that person, mm -hmm. have a, a parent in the room to make sure that th this was not conceived in any way as, you know, as something sexual. 
But Nasser would kind of just do this stuff in, in the course of his everyday treatment. And then he would put it out there in the world as kind of like almost like infotainment for other doctors <laughs> to pick up his techniques, you know, and and there were some videos that did not make it to his website that were even more graphic. Support for Survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now, back to our show. And there were some videos that did not make it to his website that were even more graphic, mm -hmm. some of which you see in the film, although we're very careful not to cross the line of sure. anything that would be seen as taking advantage of what these victims mm -hmm. went through. You see this material in which he really does go over the line and, and really kind of slips his hand into the shorts of, of victims and things like that. And you're thinking, wait a minute, come on, like, that is really not just against medical practice. It's really against the law. And, and, and Nasser was, I think, over the course of his career, if you study it, what he was doing is he was kind of pushing the limits of what he could get away with mm -hmm. and trying to make normal something that was really not normal and not healthy. And we're careful to show that in the film. Interestingly enough, the, the survivors that we worked with, Jamie Dancher, Rachel Denhollander, Jessica Howard, Maggie Nichols, mm -hmm. they really wanted... The film to show that and, and make that particular point that Nasser was kind of open about what he mm -hmm. was using. USA Gymnastics knew he was using these techniques and there were grown-ups who saw those videos and knew about Nasser's techniques well before 2015 when Maggie reported him to USA Gymnastics. They should have known. Somebody, I think Tim Evans actually says, you know, you'd think that at some point a reasonable adult would have said, wait a minute, what's going on under our roof at USA Gymnastics. Who, who is this guy? What is his background? Have there been other complaints in his history, which of course there had been going back to the 90s. Mm -hmm. And none of those questions were, were ever asked, unfortunately. It's insane. And I want to make this very clear to anybody who's listening and anybody who's watched the film, that this isn't a rare type of thing. This stuff actually happens all the time. We're working right now with Indy Star actually on a different case. Can't go too far into it because it's an active investigation, but it's a person who was in contact with children every freaking day. And the first complaints against him were in 1998. And here we are in 2021. And this is the first time he's facing any kind of consequences whatsoever and he it was like he was hiding in plain sight too he would do all of these things you know all of the all of the accounts are coming in now just like weird stuff making weird comments and adult man making comments about teenager middle school girls and you can't tell me that I mean he was a coach and a teacher you can't tell me that these other coaches and these other teachers didn't know anything about it because he's doing it right in front of them too and you know maybe it's just comments but that means something and so I, I love that you guys did this because it also, you know, going forward, this is what it looks like, guys. Like, you have to pay attention to these things. And I think some people just kind of roll their eyes and are like, oh, it's crazy. You know how he is. No, don't do that because they're showing you who they are. And it's our responsibility. It's every one of our responsibility to be on the lookout for things like that and to act accordingly. Yeah, I think this goes to or certainly have not reached the ideal way in which we react to these things, but there has been a positive step made yes. I, in, in the last several years as part of the greater MQ movement and kind of the, the consciousness about systems that are designed to 
further empower the people in power. And I think that there's a consciousness that has been born recently that has given rise to the antidote to this, which is awareness that when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, people might have had the reaction you're talking about, kind of like, oh, that's just right. Larry being Larry or, mm -hmm. or kind of whispering about rumors mm -hmm. that you might hear about teachers that yeah. did inappropriate behavior with students and that kind of thing. But now I think there's a consciousness that we as a citizens are, are empowered to speak up about these things and call it out, harm out when we see it. That's the benefit here, of course. And that's the beauty of what these brave women have done is they've kind of shown us the way and they've led the way with their speaking up. And, you know, one thing you see in the film that I should touch on is that the Indy Star wrote this article. They exposed a system, kind of a, a rotten system at USAG. And then these survivors stepped up and really mm -hmm. took on this Herculean task of standing up to this yeah. entrenched power system. And then they got a police detective who stood up and said, I'm going to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you watch her interrogate Nasser in the film, she is putting on a clinic for law enforcement. Yeah. She's showing other police officers how to investigate, how to interrogate an accused child abuser, accused uh, person of, of sexual assault. Unfortunately, as you know, as a prosecutor, police often don't do it right. And they, they often do give the benefit of the doubt right. to people who have been accused of these crimes. Not to say that there shouldn't be due process, but there is a way to go about it that can more likely lead to the truth in these cases. And then, of course, Angela Povolaitis, the great prosecutor mm -hmm. in Michigan, steps up and she does the right thing. She takes all the cases. She she prosecutes them to the fullest extent of the law. She looks out for the victims along the way, including encouraging the court to allow victims to speak about their experiences in court. And she really deserves credit for that. So every step of the way, you have kind of these key people stepping up to do the right thing. And at any one of those moments, at any one of those links in the chain, so to speak, it could have broken and mm -hmm. we wouldn't have justice. Yeah. And so in a way, it's kind of athlete A is kind of shows sort of the house of cards that justice can, is built mm -hmm. on and how if enough people kind of take the baton just at the right moment and run with it in just the right way, then hopefully we can put a guy in jail who deserves to be in jail and expose a system. But so, so often, unfortunately, that chain doesn't get made and, yep. and there, there isn't the right person at the right time. So we wanted to kind of shine a light on the yeah. miracle that happened here. Yeah, because you're right, because it all it would take is one of those people to not do the right thing, so to speak, or not be in a place where they feel like they can do it and it doesn't happen. And there is one part of this, like what you're talking about, us experiencing this shift in our culture. I think that we are, I think we're on the front end of it and it's just going to get better going forward because people are starting to talk about it. But, you know, you've got to understand too, that this is also because of like you and your film partner and the work that your team does, because when you bring it into people's living rooms and you present it to them in a way that tells a story, because I think that's how people learn. You, know, you can preach to someone or lecture them and it's going to go in one ear out the other. But when they see it through the lens of a person and understand that this is what it looks like and what it feels like for them, I think that's how you make a difference. And that's how you get people to become more aware and to make those changes. So you guys deserve a lot of credit for what you're doing. You're very talented and you guys could be doing anything and you're using your platform to give a voice to these people or to help. I shouldn't say that they have their voice, but to help get their voice out there. And that is invaluable. I I just am very thankful that you guys are doing the work that you're doing because it's so very important to all of us. Well, that's very kind of you and generous to say. We we feel, Bonnie uh, and I feel privileged to do this work. It's 
it's not easy work, but you know, of course we aren't the ones who are going through the real trauma here. We're sitting with survivors sometimes and, you know, working with them and collaborating to, to help tell their stories. But we, and, and, and of course we love what we do and we feel privileged to do it. We view ourselves as storytellers, but we really, as documentary filmmakers, we wouldn't be anywhere without the brave folks who choose to tell their stories. So I appreciate that you feel that way. And we do feel extra fortunate to be able to have our film on a platform like Netflix, which, yeah. you know, you drop a film on Netflix, <laughs> and especially during COVID. Yeah. And, you know, tens of millions of people are watching mm-hmm. it around the world. And that's been amazing to just kind of be witness to that. And actually to see the film as another link in the chain in a way mm-hmm. in the story, because, you know, survivors all around the world watch this film. Yeah. And regardless of what country they were in, they actually identified not necessarily with the sexual abuse, but often with the emotional uh, mm-hmm. abuse that was going on at USAG and, and in all kinds of places, Australia, Great Britain, the Netherlands, they started speaking up about the problems that existed in their gymnastics federation or ice skating or bicycling or other sports. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of take some pride in, in the fact that that happened and the film could be part of that greater movement. And if, if the film has provided a megaphone to amplify the story, that makes us very happy because we're so proud of the people that that really did the right thing in this case. It's, it's just super awesome. And it's so cool to, to watch it, just like you said, to watch the progression and see what all of these brave people did. And I know that this isn't your guys' first time looking into some of these issues. Your film, Audrey and Daisy, it's a little bit different. I think it's more of a, a microcosm. You're looking at two young women who have been sexually assaulted and the effects it has, not just on them, but on their families and their communities at large, which is a, another very important piece of work that I think that people should definitely watch. Thank you. Yeah, you know, Audrey and Daisy is still available on Netflix. And actually, Audrey and Daisy is a kind of a key piece of the story for us because Jennifer Say, who originally came to us with this idea of doing this documentary that eventually became Athlete A, had seen Audrey and Daisy and thought, okay, these guys get it. They understand abuse and something about how to tell these stories, these difficult stories, and turn them into films. And Audrey and Daisy tells a, a tough story that in, in many ways is, is much more pervasive than the stories that yeah. go on in Athlete A because they're kind of sort of everyday stories of young high school age girls who get abused by people they thought were their friends. Right. And, you know, in Audrey's case, her sexual assault took place um, among a group of boys who she grew up with. And same with Daisy Coleman in Missouri. And these girls and their families suffer immensely in the aftermath, partly due to the to the original abuse and partly due to the shaming mm-hmm. occurred on social media in the aftermath. And so, yeah, that's tough stuff. And unfortunately, in both Audrey's case and Daisy's case, there's examples of how the right thing did not get done. You know, the, mm-hmm. the police didn't step up and the, the school systems did not step up. And, and the, partly because of that, they, the families suffer kind of secondary and tertiary kind of abuse yeah. as a result. It's definitely a super important, it's heartbreaking to watch, it really is, but very important. And it reminded me some of a Steubenville, Ohio case from, I think it's 2012. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It was in Ohio and the same sort of thing, football team. And they had a, you know, a very great football program. These boys are football players. And it was, they filmed themselves sexually assaulting a girl and she was passed out. So it's like the same. And so, you know, these things aren't happening in a vacuum. This is actually what often happens 
all around us all of the time. And I think the social media stuff cuts both ways because we know about it more, I think, than we did before. But they're also putting it out there to each other. And what these kids do to each other on, I, I mean, I would say Facebook, but I know that that's for old people now, I guess. But on the different platforms, it's unreal. And it's hard for us, I think, to who didn't grow up with those things at our fingertips. It's, you know, hard for us to put wrap my mind around. And I think, my God, I'm so glad that I didn't grow up when that stuff, that's a, such a hard time of age anyway. And then when something horrible happens to you, but not just that, now everyone knows. And that's like your biggest fear about anything anyway, when you're that age. And so take the worst thing that's ever happened to you and everybody talking about it and blaming you. Like it's your fault that this happened. I can't imagine what it's like to go through that for those kids and for their families. And then, you know, it's just the effects are so huge. I think that people don't understand. And I think that film really zeroes in on that and shows exactly what it does to everybody around, not just the person who was victimized. I know it is hard to be a young person these days. Bonnie and I have two college age children now, um, but, but while we were making, during the time we were making Audrey and Daisy, they were, I think one was in middle school and was in high school. And, you know, anybody who has children or children themselves who are listening to this knows that any word slightly out of context that you might say on social media can be used potentially used against you socially. Mm-hmm. And I hope my daughter doesn't kill me for saying it, but you know, sometimes when I, I watch her and my son talk about maybe the way they'll even respond to a group text, mm-hmm. the vocabulary that they use and just the right way to say it is in their minds, a crucial thing, right? That response, how, how it's going to be seen by their peers. Mm-hmm. And God bless them. You know, they they're they're really understanding that this is a this is a real that social media has real consequences in their lives, and that's a relatively small thing, right? You know, the way they might respond to a, right. a social issue in in high school. But can you imagine? I suddenly like the most personal things were being said about you, and you were being accused of things that involved sexual experience at an age where you oh. might it might have been your first sexual experience. But it's like being put out on mainstream and having your clothes stripped off and yeah. people growing, you know, it is, it, it's, it's, it's like, like the, the scarlet public, letter. It's like, like our public, version of scarlet exactly. Letter. It's like a public shaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think, my God, how, how could you survive that? And of course, unfortunately, many people don't survive mm-hmm. it. And I encourage people who are listening to this, who uh, hear this, if they are having dark thoughts to reach out to suicide hotlines and get help if they need it, because it's just, it's just a shame because, you know, we're really losing good people that really don't deserve this. And really we're, you know, so often just innocent victims, now survivors living with with trauma, unfortunately. So yeah, it's tough stuff. And it has to be said that there are a lot of people out there who are suffering from trauma and from the fact that it wasn't taken seriously or even the opposite they were kind of shamed for it and it's really unfortunate it is it's it's hard for us to wrap our minds around but i guess that's why we're doing what we're doing but um i know we've been through a lot of stuff today is there anything else that you can think of that you definitely want to make sure is said before we sign off today oh my god i think we covered it all going back all the way to my parents all the way through (laughs) the latest and uh, you know what's going on in the me too movement and I'm, i'm so happy that you had me on today to your podcast and thank you for spreading the word about athlete a and for doing the work that you're doing as well you know we're all part of this conversation together and from bonnie and my point of view to see folks like you and journalists around the world and media organizations like netflix and others Mm -hmm. 
working kind of hand in hand with survivors in the legal community and the law enforcement community, it's really amazing. It's inspiring. And I never thought that I would place, you know, a tiny <laughs> role in this, but we're glad to be part of it. And we're really so happy that the film is getting seen. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk about the issues that brings up. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. And before we sign off today, I do have, we're doing a little bit of a different thing right now. I'm going to ask you three questions about you. Just so I think that we try to pick three questions that kind of just, you know, is a little glimpse inside to who you are uh, for listeners to learn more. So first question one, what does courage mean to you? Gosh, <laughs> I know it's kind of a big one. I think courage to me is stepping out of your comfort zone and having the the vision to see that something might be uncomfortable for you to do in the moment could ultimately lead to a greater good, both for the world at large, but also for yourself. You see a lot of courage in athlete A, that's for sure. I tell my kids all the time, you know, if I could go back to middle school and high school <laughs> and just have 1% less fear and more courage, <laughs> right. uh, I, I, I could have just ruled the world, right? <laughs> because fear ultimately is such a powerful force, especially for young people. And I think, you know, in the social setting for, unfortunately, for grownups as well. And mm-hmm. so I'll reduce fear a little bit because I think people, I believe people are really, it sounds kind of like a naive thing to say, but I believe there's a lot of good in people. And unfortunately, fear drives us to do the wrong thing and, and to not do the right thing often. So to me, that that's what courage is. It's kind of like lessening that fear and allow goodness to show. It's really, I think it's great. You're right. Fear is unfortunately a motivator for a lot of things, but it's so effective for some people to fear monger, get things done, unfortunately, but that's a great answer. Okay. Number two, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, you know, a film school professor and kind of mentor of Bonnie and mine told us all the easy films have been made. And I think that can be said in almost any profession. All the easy legal cases have been argued. All the, you know, all the easy books have been written. All the easy articles, uh, investigative pieces have been done. I think that that's true in any line of work that you're in. And that's Mm -hmm. been a good piece of advice for us. If it doesn't, if it's not hard, you're probably not doing the right thing. So th- I think about that every day. That's awesome. That resonates. If it was easy, everybody would probably be doing it, right? <laughs> so. Exactly, yeah. Okay, here's an easy one, I think. Easier, a little bit lighter. What is your favorite animal and why? Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you should really be asking Bonnie this because she's the animal lover of the two of us. We, we're a cat family. So I, for my family's sake, I, I love cats. But my gosh, I, I love animals of all sorts. And I've learned that you know, animals, it sounds cheesy, but animals are kind of people too. You know, they more studies they've done of especially these higher level thinking animals, whales, dolphins, they really are, they have a type of intelligence that you might say that many people say is a type of personality. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big animal lover. I would yeah. have to say though, if it comes down to it, the cats that sleep in our bed are probably. Like, <laughs> yeah, they rule the roost. So you better uh, say right by them. Yeah, I won't speak against them because they might find out. <laughs> That's right. Um, John, thank you so much for coming on today. You know, you guys are doing so much for people and they can learn so much. And so thank you. Please thank Bonnie. Please thank your team for doing what you do and bringing these issues into our homes and educating us. Because I think truly that's the only way that things are going to change is if we are educating other people about it. I'd also like to direct listeners to the Athlete A website, athleteafilm.com. It's like the coolest film site I've ever seen. It's 
it's so comprehensive and interactive. There are the trailer, the movie, there are educated resources, discussion guides, anything that you could possibly want to take with you to help you teach kids or adults or whomever, you know, if you're leading a, a group discussion, a lesson, everything you need is right there. I've never seen anything like it. And then also on Audrey and Daisy's website too, it's A-U-D-R-I-E and daisy.com same thing all kinds of cool stuff there that i thought was so awesome that you guys did that it wasn't just making the film you're even you know you're you're directing people where to go and how to how to learn from this and i think that that is just i thought that was super super cool so anything anybody could ask for absolutely amazing so we will put those in our show notes so people can go to them and as always thank you to everyone who's listening submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com and thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time